The CNBC app, global market news in one place. Customizable sections and personalized alerts. Stocks tracking, interactive charts and market insights all in your hands. Stay connected, stay informed. Download the CNBC app today. Very warm welcome everybody. This is Swapbox in the headlines this hour. A Wall Street turnaround pushes Asian stocks higher. U.S. indices close in the green with the Nasdaq putting in its biggest intraday comeback in three months as Alphabet hits a fresh record high. Meanwhile, gold is pairing gains but hovers still near a seven-year high as geopolitical fears remain. Meanwhile, large-scale funeral processions for Qasem Soleimani continue to crowd the streets in Iran, whilst NATO warns a conflict is in no one's interest. And the United States now forced to deny that it is pulling American troops out of Iraq following the leak of an internal memo that is hundreds of thousands gather in the southern part of Iran to mourn the death of Qasem Soleimani. And cashing in on China, Tesla's market value drives above $80 billion for the first time as Elon Musk rolls out the locally made Model 3 sedan in Shanghai. I'm sure most of you have been watching this show for 10, 15, 20 years. If you haven't, I don't know what you've been doing in the meantime. Maybe you were at school or in primary school or something. But anyway, the point being uh, is that we've said for a very, very long time, in fact, for this entire century, um, because of the many huge geopolitical events we've seen, it is stunningly difficult to trade geopolitical events. It is stunningly difficult to say there is something bad going on in this part of the world that needs to be extrapolated to confidence levels in the other parts of the world, to economic activity levels, to investor appetite in other parts of the world. Once you understand that geopolitics does not necessarily equal market reaction that you think it should do, then you're on a better premise, a better platform for trading this market. And if anything, the last three days have really shown you that as well. I mean, just take a look at these Asian markets now. The Nikkei, 1.5% to the good. The Shenzhen Composite up 1% as well. When you think about the ramifications for both the Japanese and the Chinese economy from a rising oil price because of geopolitical tensions in the Middle East, you would not be buying this market if you tried to make your extrapolation. You would be withdrawing. You would be looking for some form of safety. But the fact of the matter is, as we've said, as I just mentioned again, it is very difficult to isolate the geopolitics there and look at it in isolation from everything else that's going on. Let us face facts. There is an appetite in the market to keep buying the market as well. Let's take a look at the US markets. A very good indication uh, of this will come in a few moments time when I take a look at some of the key stocks that you bought over the last couple of years that you are still buying. The rally that Jeff talked about as well. So at our low on the Dow, we were down 0.2 of 4 of 1%. I beg your pardon, we were down 0.9 of a percent. We closed up 0.24 of 1%. So a huge rally there uh, from the lows there. Stocks like Boeing, stocks like Goldman Sachs, and stocks like these. And this is no coincidence that we saw, once again, communication services, technology companies as well, absolutely leading the fray. I mean, look, you don't need me to give you a big list of uh, huge numbers on these companies. But how about this one? Alphabet. Alphabet was trading this time for five years ago. What was it trading? 501.8 bucks 
501.8 bucks. It is now 1400 bucks as well. Facebook again, big rallies off its lows, 1.9%. And Apple again, $300, give or take the change. In terms of the data, there was some very interesting ISM figures uh, coming out uh, over the last couple of days. We have non-ISM manufacturing today. Uh, we had some very interesting PMI services figures yesterday out of the States. They were quite positive as well. Checkered figures, I would suggest, out of Europe. The French numbers in line, the German figures better as well. But here's an interesting fact, and I'll show you gold now. Not only are you buying risk on, you are also buying risk off. How does that work? Well, it's your barbell. I'm sure that's what the strategy is telling me. It's a barbell. I don't believe one word of it. I think this is a momentum trade. I don't think it's got anything to do with safety. It's the same rationale, the same things going on as when you were buying it from $1,300 and higher. And my goodness me, you were at the early part of last year. So this is a huge, as you can see, look, what were your risks about Iran there? You weren't worried about it there particularly. What about there? No? There? No. This is a momentum trade, if anything, I think, in many ways. I'm happy for people to disagree with me about it. But either way, the fact of the matter is gold is rallying and it's been rallying hard. Let's take a look at the old prices just to finish off on this one. Then we'll go right into a strategy chat straight away at the top of the hour. 68 bucks is where Brent's trading. Uh, that is off the highs. As you can see, we did touch $70 a barrel on Brent. And it's the same story on WTI, touching 64 now down to 62.69. But as we said, a couple of points to take away from this. One, very difficult to trade the geopolitics. Two, uh, the market has rallied three out of four of the last sessions. Uh, and the third part is where are people going? Mostly, they're going to the names they like and trust on the rally so far. And that, namely, is the fangs and associated stocks. Good morning, everybody. Good morning. Good morning, Steve. Um, Thanos Papasavas is uh, with us around the desk, founder and CIO of ABP Invest. Thanos, good morning to you. Morning. Well, Steve has set out the case neatly this morning. Uh, to put it crudely, I think uh, there's been a lot of hand-wringing on Wall Street uh, over the last few days about what the consequences of this Iran story uh, was going to be. At this point, reaction seems to be relatively subdued and the big money is taking that as a signal to re-engage at this point. Any reason to believe that that might be the wrong analysis of the situation? Um, no, I've, I think there, there will be reprisals. Um, there's a significant development. I think President Trump overreached in this uh, tactical event. Um, but the reprisals will not necessarily be imminent and they may not necessarily come directly through Iran. Um, so there is going to be some uncertainty. I believe that volatility generally will subside. We're not going to be remaining at these elevated levels as, as uh, markets and investors start to refocus again on the more underlying economic fundamentals. The um, story for 2019 was very much the one of the trade war and how the United States geopolitically would negotiate its economic relationship with China and to a minor extent with Russia. As we look at the 2020 outlook from these early days of trade, to what extent do you think that narrative will come back or are we going to be refocusing on the Middle East and the potential consequences of higher energy prices? I think, I think 2020 is going to be driven very much towards the elections of November. Um, and I believe that uh, President Trump will be driving the levers, be it economic levers, political levers, geopolitical levers, in order to ensure that he comes back into office. And he reduces the risk of a U.S. recession, number one, um, eases or continues to ease the tensions with China from a trade point of view, so as it does not impact the U.S. Uh, economy and, interestingly, volatility and, and sentiment in financial markets. 
And, and in terms of the Middle East, I think this came a little bit stronger than he probably expected. Uh, I would expect some, again, some intervention there, not only from the U.S., but also, interestingly, from Russia, which has remained particularly silent. And I think Putin's potential interest in this is critical because he has been an ally of Iran, but at the same time, I believe that Russia wants to come in from the cold. And, and it would be, I guess, in, in Russia's interest to, to take it easier there with the U.S., and Saudi to keep Thanos, I understand the motivation that, that you're spelling out that Trump wants to get re-elected and he's putting in place a whole series of events so that he can be. But what are the chances of a misstep? Because if you look at the way markets have been reacting, there were, were some concerns out there about a geopolitical event that's come out of nowhere. But ultimately, the market is so confident about this risk on rally that there's a global recovery story playing out. What if we're wrong? What if there is a misstep and events in the Middle East spiral out of control beyond Trump's ability to manage them? What does that do to this global recovery story that investors are so keen on. I, I, I think that's a very fair concern to have. Um, partly in terms of the impact from the markets, I believe that markets reacted in the way they did because there was a lot of complacency all the way towards year end. And any volatility, any uncertainty, wherever it came from, would have had that I I immediate impact. In terms of the risk um, widening out, if, 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 in my view, President Trump was not looking for a war in the region, that's why he sacked Bolton. Um, so I don't believe that his strategy was to increase the, the, the uncertainty and the risk in the area. This came up as a tactical event. And yes, I agree with you that tactical events could spiral out of control and it could filter something different. But I'd have that as a relatively lower risk rather than a central case scenario. Thanos, thank you. Let's refocus on this story. Um, there are a lot of elements to it this morning, so we'll do our best to cover all these off as we look at the market movements. The Pentagon has denied that it's pulling US troops out of Iraq. This after Reuters and AP published a letter from an American general to Baghdad's defence ministry implying a withdrawal. The draft document outlines the, quote, repositioning of forces and preparation for, quote, onward movement. However, a top defence official described the memo as poorly worded and a mistake. Iraq's parliament has passed a bill calling for the removal of US troops from that country. Uh, the body of the Iranian military commander, Major General Qasem Soleimani, has arrived in his hometown of Kerman for burial. After he was killed by a US airstrike last Friday. Iran's Ayatollah Ali Khamenei has led prayers for Soleimani at a funeral ceremony in Tehran. Hundreds of thousands of mourners packed the streets of the capital city with some chanting death to America. Well, the Iranian influence over the broader Middle East is absolutely one of the key issues here and one of the reasons why the administration uh, sought uh, to take out uh, Mr. Soleimani as well. And so one of the areas, of course, which is absolutely pivotal in uh, a cold stroke hot war is, of course, Lebanon and Syria. So apt that we should find Hadley uh, in Lebanon now. Hadley, I'm absolutely fascinated to see what the reaction in Beirut is uh, to the killing uh, of Qasem Soleimani. You know, Steve, uh, it seems as if they're following on really to the rest of the region here and kind of sitting in a wait and see mode. Uh, our last guest, Kim Gaddis, uh, was discussing about how pragmatic Hezbollah has always been with regards to what they um, see as their role in this country and also in terms of how they manage to keep the support for their organization as a political movement together in spite of the fact that uh, membership of Hezbollah, a U.S.-designated terror organization, while a political party in Lebanon, does certainly put uh, people in the cross 
particularly at a time when maximum pressure seems to be the order of the day coming from the Trump administration at least. So I think it's going to be really interesting to see how this plays out over the next several days in this country. Certainly, they're going to want to look tough when it comes to a retaliatory measure uh, for the death of Qasem Soleimani. I mean, he was their main man from Tehran, remember. Um, but at the same point, they have to remain very, very cautious, one would think, given the fact that this is a country that still has formed, has yet to form a government over several months. And it's also a country that's pretty much in default. It's in an economic emergency, as we've been talking about over the last several months as well. So they're in a pretty tough spot at the moment. That being said, when we think about this with regards to the broader region, I think it's also very, very important uh, to suggest to the audience that uh, with all the naysaying coming out of uh, at least the left side of the aisle in Washington, with regards to how this is being viewed, you know, we've seen hundreds of thousands of folks coming out in not just Iran, but Iraq in support of Qasem Soleimani over the last couple of days, his funeral, the mourners, he's in the south of Iran right now uh, waiting for burial. But at the same point, um, that doesn't necessarily mean that his death um, and his murder by the Americans is something that uh, isn't welcomed in this part of the world or that isn't uh, something that uh, will, frankly, be a catalyst potentially uh, for uh, folks inside of Iran to say enough is enough to that regime. Interestingly enough, over the last couple of days, we've seen statements coming from the E3 uh, in support, basically, of, of the U.S. actions here. Nobody wants a head-to-head conflict with Iran. Uh, no one has said that they want that. They want calm. They want things to go uh, to, to calm as quickly as possible. But at the same point, they don't necessarily say uh, that they're against what the Trump administration decided to do here. Because, as you know, Qasem Soleimani has the blood of Americans and others on his hands. Listen in to what uh, Ursula von der Leyen had to say. The American approach comes after repeated provocation of forces close to Iran over weeks. We are seeing a buildup of violence, and it is therefore extremely important that we succeed in breaking this cycle of violence, which is developing further and further, and to create a space for diplomacy again. And it is a particular responsibility for the European Union to use this space for diplomacy, for the European Union has over recent years built up very robust channels of communication with almost all the actors in the region, and these channels can and must now be used. So while the death of uh, Mr. Soleimani, no doubt, has rattled uh, folks in uh, Tehran, at the same point, it's not necessarily the worst thing, uh, essentially, for uh, the region itself. And that's according there uh, to Ursula von der Leyen. Of course, as you know, guys, this used to be Germany's defense minister. And uh, she was a lady that's very well known in this part of the world, the broader Middle East as well, as a result of the fact that she worked out here for a long time trying to build bridges, trying to build coalitions. So I think it's going to be really interesting to see how this all plays out in the next several days with regard to um, the commentary that we hear um, from those folks in Europe as well as the United States. It's taking a step back, thinking about Saudi Arabia, thinking about the UAE, the responses that we've heard so far from those countries. Remember, pretty muted, uh, at least so far, uh, Saudi Arabia really in the last couple of years being at the forefront of saying that the United States and the global community needs to take on Iran's malign behavior. Um, seemingly, the Trump administration has managed to do that uh, with uh, the death of Mr. Soleimani. But uh, at this point, their Gulf Arab allies remaining pretty mute. Guys. Hadley, I want to pick up on that point around the Europeans and what the role is now for any further negotiation because they will decide in coming days about whether to launch a dispute resolution process which would effectively lead to the reinstatement of those UN sanctions on Iran. If that happened to be the case, what would that mean? Because it seems as though there's been some hope that the West could possibly resurrect that nuclear program with Iran, given the Americans had walked away. There was still some vain hope that maybe there's something could be in the wings. But if there is this final resolution or this move 
to uh, head back towards a sanctions regime and with the Europeans on board, what would that mean? Well, no doubt if there was a regime change in Iran, there would be an attempt uh, by the Trump administration as well as European governments uh, to find some sort of resolution or perhaps resurrect uh, the JCPOA in some form or another. Um, but that would require uh, that the Americans at least have someone that they feel that they can safely negotiate with. And they've said again and again that the country's foreign minister, Javad Zarif, is not that man. He was that man for John Kerry, but it seems as if he's not that man uh, for the Trump administration. They feel that he doesn't have any power. Interestingly enough, uh, we just saw uh, the uh, foreign minister of Iran denied entry into the United States. There's an upcoming UN Security Council meeting. He's been denied access uh, or visa for the United States. It's not the first time that the administration has decided to do that, of course. Uh, certainly within light of what we've seen in the last several days, it isn't surprising as well. But in terms of what happens next here, um, and in terms of resurrecting the JCPOA, I think uh, no one in Washington ever actually believed that this was something that could come back online without the support of the United States. And so it was always an interesting question uh, for folks that we would speak to out in the region uh, and in Europe as well. You know, if you don't have the United States on board here, you can talk all you want about creating an alternate financial system. You can talk all you want about trying to bring the Iranians back to the table. But from day one, you'll remember when they decided uh, to start exerting the, quote, maximum pressure campaign, the Iranians were already threatening uh, to back away from their commitments to the JCPOA. They said if, you know, the Americans weren't going to come uh, to the table and work with them, then there was no point in continuing with those commitments. The Europeans trying to get in there and save the day, at least in terms of uh, keeping them on board with their prior commitments uh, in terms of nuclear enrichment. But the Iranians have always been threatening to do this. So it really is no surprise that they would uh, say that in the end, that's not something that they were going to um, continue uh, to meet in terms of those goals and expectations as a result of this uh, murder, if you will, of Qasem Soleimani. Guys. Hadley, thank you for that. We'll come back to you a little bit later on. Hadley joining us out of uh, Beirut for the latest on that story. Well, it may be uh, laden with uh, in excess of $13 billion worth of debt, but Tesla's share price powers on. An energy boost for the company. We're going to talk about what's pushing the car maker to an $80 billion valuation milestone. Also ahead, Australia weighs the humanitarian, environmental and economic cost of the bushfires that continue to rage across the southeast of the country. If you enjoy Squawk Box Europe, check out the Brave Ones podcast. The series explores the rise of some of the world's most successful entrepreneurs. Through exclusive interviews with family, friends and colleagues, the Brave Ones podcast features stories of determination, resilience and ingenuity. Available on Apple Podcast, Spotify and Google Play. The Brave Ones podcast presented by Credit Suisse. Rolls-Royce Motorcars has posted record sales in 2019 thanks to strong performances across all regions. That's fascinating. Now, as you all know, it's a BMW-owned company. The luxury automaker reported a 25% increase in sales compared with the previous year, boosted by rising demand for its newly launched SUV model. Do you want a quick word on the SUV, guys? I've seen it on the roads. I'm not sure, but there's a lot of... 
lot of SUVs out there. No, there's um, well, I, 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 I love Rolls Royce, so magnificent. I'm not sure the SUV is aesthetically the best so one. So I think that um, all of these prestige car makers that have got into the SUV market yes. produce fairly ugly cars, to be honest, um, and they all look a bit bottom heavy, yeah. don't they? When you look at the back end of these vehicles, because they're trying to get. Uh, so much space in there, but keep these cars keep fast. Keep the aesthetic lines, like the Porsche, for instance. I mean, it's, it takes a lot of muscle to get a two or three ton vehicle to travel yeah. at the kind of speeds it needs to travel at yeah. to convince people to buy an, uh, you know, a, um, a, a Porsche or a Rolls-Royce or whatever. Is it bad of me to say whatever. that all three of us own some form of SUV? And we well, have crossover for one crossover. Of us. Sorry, Karen. Quite crossover. Exactly. Crossover. Exactly. Karen's got a crossover, and yep. you and I both own uh, uh, various but, things. But and we're, 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 we're more traditionalists, it's, it's aren't we? It's the status, though, isn't it? To an extent, when you're buying a massive SUV with a badge on the back of it, oh. yeah. its status is not necessarily the fine lines of the vehicle. Yeah, no, true. But so I mean, a true luxury device. Yeah. Anyway, well, look, we're going to speak to the man himself, uh, who's we speak to a lot, actually. I haven't seen him for a while, but it'd be great to catch up again with the CEO of Rolls-Royce, Torsten Muller-Utvers. Uh, that's the first on CNBC, 800 CET. So we'll talk about um, SUVs, because I think it's amazing that Rolls-Royce is still doing so well when there are such oscillations, mm. dare I say it, down the luxury line a little bit, the cheaper models, more mass market models as well. And I guess... Karen, it's something you talked about a lot. It's like the Hermes model. If you're right at the top end, you're absolutely... I'm, I'm in your shot there, so I'll get completely in your shot. Um, if you're at the top two, end... Two of us can do that. <laughs> <laughs> oh, oh, we're, we're playing that game, are we? <laughs> uh, but if you're at the top end, you seem to be immune at the moment, is my point. Anyway, look, I better move on, because Bentley returned to profitability in 2019 as the British luxury car maker saw growth in Europe and America's offset declining sales in China. That's exactly my point. Bentley's seen declining sales in China. Anyway, the VW-owned company did not reveal its exact profit figure, but it said that annual sales grew by 5% thanks to strong demand for its new convertible model. Uh, controversial, Tesla has reached a new milestone. Its market cap has risen above $80 billion, which is nearly as much as General Motors and Ford combined. Shares <coughs> closed near $452 after the electric car maker delivered more vehicles than expected in the last quarter of 2019. Tesla is today delivering its first domestically made model in China. Let's get to Arjun, who's with us from Guangzhou who has more on this story. And it does seem, when you look at how the share price is moving, this China aspect to the Tesla story seems to have been a bit of a sentiment shifter. It certainly is very important. And this moment today is not just about delivering cars to China. It's also a, a big sort of message about chi uh, Tesla's global ambitions as well. China being a very critical part of that. The fact that Tesla's opened a factory in Shanghai, it's first outside of the US uh, as well. But the interesting point here is that it comes at a time of uh, a lot of cooling when it comes to the electric vehicle market in China. When Tesla initially announced that Shanghai factory back in 2018, you had electric vehicle sales skyrocketing. Fast forward to November, the latest figures out of China where that electric vehicle sales had plunged 43%. So that market's cooling down as the government rolls back some of the subsidies and incentives that have propped up this market. Another big challenge for Tesla, of course, is going to be the price point which they're bringing this Model 3 to China. If you look, uh, nearly 
90% of cars sold in China are at 100,000 yuan price point or lower. The Tesla Model 3 uh, debuts at over 300,000 yuan, so uh, three times premium to that majority of cars being sold in China here. Another big challenge, of course, is the competition, not just from the local players and some of the upstarts here, but also for some of the established automakers, international automakers coming to market with their own electric vehicle offerings. But of course, for Tesla, they have this sort of luxury factor. They have this brand presence. And of course, the Elon Musk factor. Lots of fans of Tesla and Elon Musk here in China are no doubt wanting to get their hands on this Model 3 uh, as well. Uh, now, just some of the forecasters well how well would the model 3 sell in china it depends who you ask you've got um you know estimates ranging from 21,000 units this year all the way through to 150,000 units i guess that talks a little bit to the fact that this is a very divisive company a very divisive stock bulls and bears on both sides have their own opinion on where this tesla story is going but one thing is for sure that this chinese story is extremely critical combined with the recent turn to profit combined with the beat on estimates around production targets as well and this china story and that's why you've seen this stock rally in the last few months of 2019 guys back to you arjun stay right there we just want to pick up on some more auto news at ces as hyundai is aiming to take flight with uber the companies are working together to develop a line of flying taxis the electronically powered personal air vehicle will be able to carry up to four passengers with a pilot and could eventually be fully autonomous it will also be able to travel up to 60 miles at speeds reaching 180 miles per hour. A full-scale mock-up is making its debut at the Consumer Electronics Show in Las Vegas this week. The goal is to launch them in 2023. You can join us on Street Signs at 10.45 CET as well. And we'll be joined by Paolo Pescatore, the tech, media and telco analyst at PP Foresight, for his insights around CES. Um, Chinese representation at CES is expected to be significantly lower than last year, with fewer companies attending the show amid trade tensions between Washington and Beijing. Arjun is uh, still with us. And Arjun, uh, love to hear what the view is on the ground there, because CES is always a pivotal event, kicks off the year for the tech industry. But it sounds like a lot of Chinese tech players are going to give it a miss. Yeah, and I'm not surprised about that, Jeff. Actually, you know, a lot of the Chinese companies I've been speaking to on the ground here over the past few months as well, uh, since, say, August last year, they're keeping their heads down a lot, trying to get on with their own business and trying to continue to push forward with new products. I mean, Huawei's a good example. Despite that U.S. blacklisting, it did release a brand new device uh, sort of in, in the third quarter of last year. And you've got a lot of companies continuing to push forward the products, but not necessarily at these huge trade shows. And part of it, yes, is the fact that there is this, uh, of course, trade war, tech war going on between the US and China. But the other part is sometimes these trade shows do get very messy. CES is absolutely mammoth now. It's huge. And a lot of these companies do just get lost in the noise uh, as well. So they often prefer to launch uh, these devices, especially the bigger ones, the likes of Huawei, on their own terms as well. So that's probably part of it. But also uh, the fact that these Chinese companies don't want to push themselves too much into the spotlight uh, around too many reporters and journalists and, and audience and trade members as well. Uh, as this trade war continues to go on. Thank you for listening to Squawk Box Europe Express. For more market-moving news, you can head to cnbc.com. Or join us again on the show with Jeff Cutmore, Steve Sedgwick and Karen Show Weekdays on CNBC.